Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Now, if this is your first time listening on this podcast, Bean and I talk about some of the more interesting points in the very, very long history of cannabis. We are both cannabis journalists and media makers, and we've spent chunks of our lives obsessing over and studying the wonders of cannabis. And on this show, we get to talk about some of the moments that led up to our cannabis present. You should know that I have no prior knowledge of anything we're about to talk about. Bean has done all the research. He's going to be telling me the story, and I'm going to chime in. We're going to smoke some weed. We're going to have some tea. It's going to be fun. So hang out with us, and we're going to get into it. Bean, what do you got for us today? Uh, today's story is really all about resiliency, uh, which I think is actually something we learn right from the plant. Um, I've seen some some weed plants that were really mistreated, uh, or the, nobody turned the lights on for a while, or they didn't get. And they, that, it's a hardy plant, you know. It grows. It is truly a weed, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, historically, the resilience of cannabis as a plant and the adaptability of cannabis as a plant is what led early human beings to carry it all over the place with them, to take it to new places, to plant the seeds. Uh, you know, you could rely on the fact that it would actually grow in a lot of different climates. You know, hemp, which a lot of people think is a different plant than the cannabis that we, the flowering cannabis that we use uh, to get psychoactive flowers from. But it's not. In fact, it's the same plant, just adapted to a different environment. So, yeah, I'm all about the resilience of cannabis, man. Yeah, and and of our culture and and how we kept this going um, through the dark days of prohibition to ultimately win. Uh, this story's got a little bit of all of that. Great metaphor, Bean. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I came up with it a long time ago, not yeah. while we were just sitting yeah. down right now. <laughs> no, that's record. one from the vault. Yeah. <laughs> Tight. Uh, okay, sick. So uh, what are we talking about? Oh, wait, I, are we ready to? I think we might be. Ready? I've got a J all twisted up You've here. You've got a J all twisted up? All right. Well, if you're not quite there, hit pause uh, and roll one up or pack one up or do what you want to do because we're ready to journey back in time to another great moment in weed history. So, Bean, what are we talking about today? All right. Well, this is a story about somebody I've actually known for, uh, God, almost uh, over 10 years now. Uh, and I'll just get into the story and we'll, we'll go from there. The, the first time I interviewed Robert Platshorn, this was back in 2005, our phone call kept getting interrupted by a recorded voice on the line reminding me that I was talking with a federal inmate. Oh, wow. So this is somebody who was in prison, I'm assuming, for cannabis based on the nature of this show. <laughs> Good assumption. Uh, yeah, this is back when I was a reporter for High Times, and I got an email um, from a guy, and he said he, there was a cover story in 1981 about my father. He's still in prison, and he is supposed to be let out, and the parole board is refusing to hear his case. And would you talk to him and write an article? And it was for cultivating trafficking. What was the nature of the crime? Smuggling. 
smuggling. Yeah, we are in that like seventies, going back to 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 uh, you know when he got arrested and and his whole operation was sort of that golden era of. Uh, smuggling in, you know, U.S. homegrown weed wasn't really a thing. Um, no one had created the hybrid strains that would grow well here. So you had these guys going down to Mexico, the Caribbean, South America. Yeah, you know, smuggling weed in bulk is kind of a arcane concept in the United States in some ways because it's become so available in so many different places. But if you've seen the movie Blow, for example, you know, the story of George Young, um, you know, before he got into blow, I mean, a big chunk of the movie is him smuggling cannabis, right? He's smuggling cannabis from uh, from Mexico, perhaps, into the United States. And, you know, and that's how he's doing business because that's where you got the weed from. You know what I mean? If you wanted to have that supply, you had to find a way to, a route to move it into the country first, you know? Yeah, and these were the early days. As you know, as we're going to hear in this story, interdiction at the border was also just starting um, so it was not the drug war as we know it now. Um, it was a lot of these guys were what we would think of as really small time operators, in, including uh, Robert Platcher. And he, he was um, it was in this era. And what, what ultimately happens is when you crack down on the little guys and you make it this serious crime, um, well, then you go from that to the cocaine cowboys era. Because cocaine is much more lucrative. If you're if you're gonna risk a big prison sentence for anything, uh, it's way easier to smuggle cocaine. It's much more profitable, and the big organized criminal uh, entities they have the wherewithal to do that, and it pushes out all these sort of small time smugglers. Right. So Platjorn, am I saying his name right? Mm-hmm. So Platjorn was dealing with. Dozens of pounds, hundreds of pounds. Like, how much weed is he actually moving? Um, I mean, hundreds. You know, that makes you a small timer in the grand scheme of things. It's way more weed than I've ever seen in one place. The weed was weaker back then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you should have been his lawyer. You could have gotten him out in like like, six. This weed is weak. I smoked a half pound of this weed (laughs) on the way over here. So it's all relative, you know? I have like a little headache. Yeah, that's a great argument, actually. (laughs) Well... That in a time machine, <laughs> I'm sure could help. Um, so yeah, at the time he's uh, he's trying to get out, and all told, he uh, served 29 years uh, in prison for a first time nonviolent offense. Damn, that's crazy! Just for cannabis. So hey, listen up, kids. <laughs> you know, I mean, and and a lot of people now who you you do live in places perhaps. You know, if you're listening to this, perhaps you do live in a place where the the laws are so draconian that you could get into that much trouble. But, you know, it's, uh, again, there's like, you know, in the United States or in a place like California or in a lot of places in the U.S. right now, uh, no one can imagine those types of sentences. And in fact, I mean, right next door to California in Arizona, you know, people uh, get locked up for weed for, for years, you know, for like a half a joint. So where was he exactly? Uh, this is a, this is a, he's a Philly guy. So no kidding. I know kidding. you got Philly roots, but but he's working out of South Florida. Yeah, just a special shout out to you know all the Philadelphia Eagle fans out there who are blazing trees and listening to this right now. We did it. Um, so I, I I talked to him. He's still trying to get out, and what he told me was, um, you know, he his 
plan was to get out of prison as soon as he could. He wanted to go fishing with his son, who he hadn't seen since he was four years old. And he wanted to publish his memoirs, uh, which he'd been writing over the course of 30 years on these like battered prison typewriters whenever he was allowed access to My it. My God. So he was in federal prison. So this was like state line stuff. Yeah. He was in federal prison the entire time. Sometimes he was in uh, maximum security places. He told me about different uh, like mob family bosses that he knew like working in the he told me it was one story about like he was working in the kitchen and and it was him and I won't I won't say who it was uh but a recognizable mafia name at least if you know that sort of stuff but he said every night they'd have the same conversation uh because because if you worked in the kitchen you'd get to cook a little meal for yourself at the end of the day and it'd be him and this guy were like the guys running the kitchen because they'd been there forever this was a choice job you know, right. you get to cook a little meal just for the little kitchen crew every day. Well, what do you want to make? And uh, Platt Shorn would say, I don't know, this or that. And he'd go, all right, well, I was thinking pasta fazool. And then he'd go, right. you know what? Pasta fazool. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's what we should have. <laughs> all right. So anyhow, so. Yeah. So he, he does eventually get out. Uh, it still took years after the first time I talked to him battling the parole board. Um, but he gets out and he needs to figure out how to get back on his feet. He's got this memoir that he wrote, but, um, you know, he's looking to do something. And he goes back onto the pitchman circuit, uh, which is what he used to do, like uh, Chopomatic and Like a television pitchman, like, like uh, Willie Mays. Yes, exactly. Billy Mays. Billy, Billy Mays was a baseball he player. He knew him and 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 they were like uh a small crew of people. He he never he didn't do it on TV, he did it at events. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, sure. I've seen this sort of thing like uh, there's a guy standing there with like just the hood of a car. You know what I mean? And he like hits it with a hammer and then like he's like, "Check it out. Good as new," you know? Yeah, and he he could do all kinds of like fancy chopping and garnish vegetables into shapes and he's like a good-looking charismatic guy back in the day so and, he, and this is his post-prison life here after 30 years away there were people who remembered him from that world and were like yeah dude if if, if you can move units we'll take you back if you can't move units oh so he was actually in this game before he went into prison yes this was his game before Oh, I see. So he was already pretty experienced, but I mean, being out of the game for that long, you would assume the industry would have moved on. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, they were just, that was their deal. They were like, if people buy it, you're hired. If you go out there and don't sell, you know, nothing for you. And he could still crush it. And he still had the stuff. Okay, cool. So he gets out and it's not the worst situation for someone just out of federal prison after a long time. He has some success. Yeah. And he was, so he was very successful at this, um, before he went to prison. So I asked him, like, you know, why? how did you get into smuggling weed? Mm -hmm. Like, what, you know, would make you become a big smuggler? You already, you know, had your shit together. And he was not young, not that young when he uh, started smuggling. I mean, to tell you the truth, that feels like it's kind of part of the premise of the story, right? Is that a guy who's a TV pitch man goes to jail, <laughs> you know? How come you didn't mention that sooner? <laughs> I got a little lost. Okay, it's so good it happens. Okay, cool. So, so basically, I mean, he was a pitch man, right? Who, for some reason, ended up getting into weed smuggling. Why the hell did he do it in the first place? 
Yeah, so I, I asked him that, and he said um, it was the atmosphere of the 70s. You, you you talk to people from the, that were like heads in the seventies. It was yeah. wild. Yeah, you you hear about you know the, just the uh, the indulgence or the you know the the levels of uh, just the volumes of drugs that are you know like moving around. Um, but I mean, if you're moving hundreds of pounds of weed, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would incidentally happen. I mean, okay, if they find like an ounce of weed in your car or something, that's like it was the seventies. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's like true. moving hundreds of pounds of weeds. That's not like, oh, it was the 70s, right? Yeah. I mean, like, but what was, I mean, did he have any more of an explanation yeah. for it? So he said, the first time somebody came to me and said, I have 500 pounds. Do you know anybody who wants it? Uh, that was a very attractive proposition. He's also like a wheeler dealer kind of guy. Right. So he was just enticed by the thing that entices everyone who gets into the drug game, weed game, whatever it is, selling illegal stuff. It's It's a hustle. You know what I mean? If you're a hustler... You're going to be into it. Yeah. And then he said, you know, at that time, then this is true. Uh, the average first offender, even for big uh, weight crimes like that, uh, would get three to five years. And usually that would be a suspended sentence. I never thought anyone was serious about putting people away for a long time for marijuana. I honestly thought pot was going to be legalized in a couple of years. This was like the Carter years. Right. Um you know, and I figured this was no big deal. Yeah, this is such a familiar thing, kind of. And I mean, definitely the first card you want to play if you ever get in trouble for a lot of something is be like, oh, I had no idea this was prohibited. I, I, uh, you can go, to, you go to jail for this? Oh, dear God, officer. I, oh, well, no, if I had known that, I never would have got into this. You know, honestly, that explains a few things. <laughs> Because this stuff seems popular, but I never see it in stores or advertised on television. So, mm -hmm. But indeed, playing the ignorance yeah. card was not going to work for Platjorn in this situation, unfortunately. And, I mean, that's crazy because we're talking about a time when there was draconian federal weed laws. But a lot of these uh, measures, a lot of these, like, sort of sentences are still happening. You know what I mean? Like, there's still pretty hefty sentences being handed down by the federal government for uh you know for for trafficking cannabis and there's still people inside for a long time you know uh, one of the great things about legalization as it passed in california is you know there is a mechanism by which to get released uh to have your record expunged so, uh some big cities have just gone ahead and expunged records uh without you even having to do anything so you know, that is something we really need to keep in mind as we keep legalizing. Yeah. And San Francisco recently threw out, uh, you know, all the small cannabis convictions. Right. And I mean, like, or, or perhaps all of them. I don't know. But, but it just it makes sense. You know, like the cannabis being included with the prohibited drugs that really carry hefty sentences is a very politicized consequence of a lot of economic bullshit, really. You know what I mean? Uh, but anyhow, so Platchorn. Yeah, so so most people are getting like a suspended sentence for smuggling. Somebody comes to him and says, hey, I know where to get 500 pounds. He likes adventure and risk. He says, what the hell? And what happens is this is right around the time the DEA is forming. Not a friend of the podcast. Not. Um and they've got this operation going in South Florida called uh, Operation Banco. It's their first time looking into pot smuggling. Um, they've spent 
tons of money on this operation and they haven't caught anybody that they can prosecute. You know who they have caught that they can't prosecute in South Florida? Who? Platorn? No, no. Wait, they, uh, they prosecute <laughs> the shit out of him. They, who, the, the, the big operators that they find through this investigation are all people who are like the old anti-communist Cubans that the CIA uh, probably killed gotcha. Kennedy with. Ah, okay, gotcha. Sure, sure, sure. So they keep having to throw them back and and not prosecute them. And now they've got this big budget spent and nobody uh, to show for it, no arrests. So so essentially the, the DEA was assembled to target like drugs coming in from, from Cuba like or whatever, like over... Uh, overseas, right? That's a big part of their mission. That's yeah. not their entire. It, this is, but that came to nothing essentially. This this whole operation, they they said we know all this weed's coming into South Florida, and it was. I mean, that's where tons. You know, it's the seventies, so it's going from not that many people smoking pot to a lot of people smoking a lot of pot. Right. It's got to come from somewhere. It doesn't grow well in the U.S. yet. And South Florida becomes this place where it's coming in. Uh, and so the DEA goes to look and like, who's doing this? How is so much? It doesn't add up to them. And then they realize it's like these people that are anti-communists, people who had been part of like the CIA's campaign against Cuba and the Bay of Pigs and like all these sort of mercenary people that have long CIA ties so they can't prosecute them because they could basically be like, oh, you're going to prosecute me. I'll just talk about how we killed Kennedy. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay, so that's a big side story. Uh, But yeah, so essentially now they've come up with no examples, no sort of, uh, you know, no one to to turn into the poster kid for, uh, you know, serious drug charges, essentially. Yeah. And then the next thing that happens is the IRS uh, and customs. See, customs, that used to be their turf, who's coming in and bringing stuff in. So they see the DEA spending all this money and they start investigating the DEA, uh, which is a very new organization at this point. It's only a couple of years old. This is like their first thing and it's failing. Um, so, of course, they decide we got to find somebody to take the fall. Right. And Platchorn is an easy scapegoat right now. And he's in their clutches. He's he's they clutch him. Um, so, you know, nobody doubts that uh, him and his and his crew were moving serious weight. Um, but compared to the big time smuggling rings at the time, they're like little fish. Um, but they threw the book at him. But they threw the book at him. But, you know, he had a good time doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's this sort of golden era ending with his bust because before there were these heavy prison sentences, it attracted, like, you know, people who were just swashbucklers, you know? Um, and, And this is his description of, like, a little bit more of his mindset of why he was attracted to this smuggling Life, like, do you do you know? You must know people who are like fully on that other side of the law, right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting that so many of those people are now involved in like the legal cannabis industry. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, of course. I mean, there's like uh, 
There's a lot of people who run into this shit in high school. I mean, I had friends who would, you know, get nabbed uh, for this kind of stuff and for just small amounts of weed. Right. And the funny thing was, it's like essentially in the same category as all these other things. Like you almost would rather get caught uh, fist fighting. You'd rather get arrested for fist fighting with somebody than you would smoking a joint with somebody outside a bar. Right. Which is a crazy thing to think about because like, you know, Fist fighting someone is, that's really terrible. You're, you know, exacting violence on someone else in public. You know what I mean? But if a cop catches you doing that, he's just going to break you up and be like, all right, no broken bones, no, like, you know, heavy bleeding. Just, all right, just shake hands and walk on home, right? If two guys are smoking the joint, the cop's going to be like, that's it, you're going down. You know what I mean? That's such a fucked up thing. Um, But that's, you know, that's really the crux of, like, you know, uh, the issue when it comes to nonviolent offenders. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's sort of brilliant because I love those that like meme where it shows like, oh, alcohol does this and it's the guy puking his guts out and then yeah. the other side is like, uh, you know, two people, you know, a guy happily smoking a joint right. and like chilling or whatever and it makes a good point but like, your thing as a meme, as a split screen, is like it's not about weed; it's about enforcement and authoritarian mm-hmm. mindset. And like, yeah, yeah, it's obvious, but like, it's such a clear vision. Isn't that funny? Yeah, uh, I should write that down. I'm glad we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are we? Yeah. Did we, did we start? <laughs> yeah. No, this is still the. Oh, this is fuck! The, you should have said. Yeah. Oh, is this the practice run we do before every episode? This, we, yeah. we just. Rehearse all this shit. We're just reading this off teleprompters. It's you know, it's like You're not scrolling. To say anything. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, we we control the edit. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. We won't let this slip through. No, not at all. Intro- no one will ever hear this. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Fuck everybody. Uh, you know. Oh, I'm gonna denounce some people who don't even know that I dislike them. Starting yeah. in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, Aaron A. Aronson. <laughs> oh, Fuck he's you. A fucking- <laughs> God, Aronson. <laughs> Hit stop, because I don't even want my words in your ears. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now that he's gone, um, let, you want to hear him describing the, the romance of the smuggler lifestyle? Yeah. This is fun. This is from an interview that I did with him. Awesome. So he said, uh, smuggling weed was great back when we dealt with nice people who were fun to be around and did not have guns. That that sounds like a magical time. You know what I mean? And a time that we're kind of returning to. Thankfully, it's nice that, uh, you know, guns and cannabis are, like, parting ways again. You know, now with, like, cannabis liberalization. But there was a time, like, yeah, once again, man, you're a drug dealer dealing with any kind of drug, guns are part of the game. Yeah, but that's that's how sort of innocent this was back in the in the day. It was the seventies. <laughs> that's still the best. Like they're like, sir, like you were caught, like you know, you stole seventy six classic cars, and he's like, it was the eighties. You know what I mean? You're like, well, yeah, I guess. Like, get get out of here, you scamp. <laughs> even to extend your metaphor, it's like a, a cop finds that ounce in your glove box or a gun. I'm sure 80% of the cops out there like look at you harder if you've got an ounce in your glove compartment. That's an interesting thing that in a lot of places in the United States to this day, you would rather get caught with a gun in your glove compartment than a bag of weed by the police. That's fucking insane to think about too. Um, And if you're in one of those states, 
Tell us what that's like. Email us and tweet at us because we're remember. curious. I remember. <laughs> All too well. Um, so and then this is him talking about his his life in those days. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea how it feels to be at the controls of an old DC-3 flying through a mountain pass near Santa Marta in Colombia? Oh, so he was deep in the game. I mean, he was flying around in small planes in Colombia. Yeah, not even that small of a plane, but a small plane, yeah. Um, Your instructions are to go over a picturesque little town with a church steeple at 10,000 feet, then drop down at 2,000 feet and follow a stream to a remote airstrip where the cows scatter in every direction as you put your wheels down. Crazy. It's early in the morning, the sun is shining, the Andes are so gorgeous, and at the far end of the runway, a huge truck's waiting for you, filled up with bales of the best bud you've ever smoked in your life. Mm, It's interesting. I wonder what kind of cannabis we're talking about here. I mean, like, specifically, I'd be so curious to see, like, a picture of, uh, or, like, just uh, get, like, a scratch and sniff, you know what I mean, (laughs) Of, of, of what that stuff must have been like. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's you know tropical equatorial weed, right? Yeah, it's definitely sativa. There was it was literally called Santa Marta Gold, and and at the time, like now we have like the hot new strains come out, right? It's all about breeding, right? Like yeah. what, what's uh, as as we're sitting here now, what's like the current hot strain you think? Um, I don't know. You see a lot of like uh, gelato is always around a lot. Purple punch is kind of like a strain still. I feel like that's. That's dope. You know what I mean? But yeah. Well, in the 70s, the equivalent is like some person would go to a new place like Colombia or Mexico or Jamaica and and get a supply that was big enough to bring in enough that people started talking about, you know, Punta Roja and Acapulco Gold. and, And one of them that you would hear about is this strain he was bringing in, Santa Marta Gold uh, from Santa Marta in Colombia. Um, and there's no definitely kidding. pictures of it on the internet. Scratch and sniff. I don't know. Sadly. But uh, yeah, no, that that's amazing. So he's in kind of weed heaven right now. You know what I mean? Platorn is, uh, he's kicking it. He's, you know, in this beautiful landscape. And there's a truckload of really dank ass weed sitting there waiting for. Yeah. And and to your to our, both our question of like, well, how do you start doing this? Yeah. After listening to him say that, if he was like, all right, I'm going to go get in the plane now. Do you want to go? I'd be like, mm, yeah. Yeah, right? Actually. You're like, that sounds like an incredible adventure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he really stressed like, and this is something that's been my experience is just as a weed journalist, is how cool the people that he met was and how much he liked the whole vibe of the scene uh, at that time. And that's definitely how I feel about weed people. Yeah, weed people are generally pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I've been, I, you know, I've definitely been in sketchy weed situations in various countries, but that's because I think that results because weed is, you know, forced into like the shadows, like, you know, through, through, uh, this sort of uh, Eurocentric Western-led prohibition in like other places. And, you know, that's why it becomes a part of the seedy element of whatever culture. But otherwise, I mean, by and large, if you're with people who are constantly using cannabis, look, this is kind of an empathy-inducing substance. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you're going to be more amenable to, you know, relating to another person if you're stoned. and And that's a great thing about being a cannabis user because if you, like, you know, see somebody out there in the world and you give them the old international symbol, 
You know what I mean? You've made a new friend instantly. Yeah. It's a great thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he says it, it was all romantic as hell uh, back in those 70s. I bet. Uh, but all of that collapsed when the DEA uh, made it very clear that they were going to treat pot smuggling as a very serious crime. Right. Um, so so well, he's fucked. He's, he's fucked and he doesn't know it. He stopped smuggling like a year before they come to get him. No kidding. So, so meaning they had basically been watching him for a long time and had collected evidence on him. Yes. And they, so they wanted to get the big guys, kept realizing they couldn't get the big guys for political reasons. They went back into the old files and were like, all right, who do we got that we can pin? It's the files that fucking kill you. You The cops, the cops, once again, the cops enter, uh, an episode of Great Moments in Weed History with a nice little... Yeah, not 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 going to be the heroes of too many of these tales. Um, so they they raid him and like uh, 11 other people from, from the operation. His wife also is in jail for just a little while. Um, and they make this into like, this is the first time they turn prosecuting a drug crime into like a media spectacle uh, where there's press conferences and those like pictures of look at all this stuff we did and, uh, you know, really kind of trying this guy in the press to make it seem like he's a big deal when he's really not. Right. So, I mean, this is classic police behavior. You know what I mean? Seeing that they're far more in it for the glory or the political gain than for the actual benefit of enforcement. If you've ever seen The Wire, this is nothing new to you, right? It's like you see that the commissioner, all the people, you know, the police, you know, as an institution, as an organization, is a political entity. It's not, like, actually they're designed, it's not designed to, like, serve and protect, like it says on the side of a car. The same way that the water utility, like, you know, fucks up half the time because it's underfunded and it's run by stupid people. I mean, that's pretty much every, like, you know, that's, you could apply that to the police department as well, I think, in most cases. So here, you know, uh, Platchorn is the unwitting patsy in a situation. A guy who has committed a crime technically on the books, but a patsy nonetheless, because he's not serving time for his crimes he committed. He's serving time for the failures of law enforcement to actually do their job in the first place. Yeah, he's part of their PR campaign. Um, and and that's yeah. really what it comes down to. And he's not getting paid for it. <laughs> no, uh, no, he's not. They call him the part of the biggest and slickest uh, weed smuggling ring in U.S. history. That's a quote. Uh, they bring out the Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, uh, RICO. As it's oh yeah, known. of course, Rico. Yeah. Uh, so this is designed again to go after yeah. these like big crime families, and they're using it against this this guy and his buddies. Uh, wow, and dude, that is insane. So I mean, you know, the, the, that's just one of so many infuriating stories like this of you know people getting busted for weed. But this one is especially bad because that sentence is 
pretty fucking insane. That's a chunk of someone's life, you know? Yeah, and this is, you know, they're running this PR campaign, and they're also sending a message like, punishment will be completely disproportionate to the crime. Um, And that continues. And that is how we get to this uh, mass incarceration place in our society uh, with, you know, privately run for-profit prisons. All of this, the DEA is new, this this sort of drug war industrial complex as we know it now is forming and uh, becoming uh, a model that they're going to spread to the rest of everything. Uh, over this time. So so what, what Platchorn says is, yeah, you know, we made a modest amount of money, but not even 1% of what was alleged at our trial. Uh, the government claimed we brought in up to 3 million pounds, but in reality, they only had 100,000 pounds. That's no small amount. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100,000 is a lot. Like, you figure that's like, I mean, that's a career of runs. You know what I mean? But... Three million is like, you think of three million, and that's not humanly possible by like a small crew of dudes. Yeah. You know, in a matter of years, moving three million pounds of weed is going to take infrastructure. Uh, so that's pretty ridiculous to assume that, you know, Platform's, uh, you know, crew is capable of that. Yeah. He says, in total, we made three flights and a boat trip, and all of a sudden, we're the biggest thing that ever hit marijuana. Um, and to your point, like, the only people who have that kind of infrastructure are going to be the cartels. They're building the cartels. It's not drugs that made the drug cartels. It's drug prohibition that made the drug cartels. Right. Yeah, of course. Because, I mean, that demand remains steady or spikes up, you know, every time this enforcement attempts to like, you know, it's like uh, it's it's like uh, water, uh, you know, uh, coming into like a ship in a sense. Right. Like meaning like. It's like the drug physics are tell you that those drugs are coming in one way or another. You can you plug one hole, it's going to come in through another hole faster. You know what I mean? Um, and the, it's not the best analogy because in the end, you know, you let all the water in the wheat and the ship sinks. But uh, shipwrecks are cool. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the the, the point being that. We all know that the enforcement methodology doesn't really work. You know what I mean? Because it has given us the state of things uh, today. We all know what the drug war results in, right? So uh, cops are dumb. Wow, we always we always come back to that point, don't we? Seems to come up a lot in this show. But yeah, uh, the fucking cops are really taking advantage of this poor bastard. Yeah, and the other point that he makes is, like, you get to jail, and there's weed in jail, and there's other drugs in jail. So what is society, how uh, hard, locked down of a world are we going to live in to actually stop drugs from being the water that gets into that ship, in your Mm -hmm. metaphor? So Yeah. um, (laughs) But low these many years, he uh, gets out in 2008. And he goes back to being a pitch man and he publishes his memoirs, which are called Black Tuna Diaries, which are really fun. Uh, And he's out at the Seattle Hemp Fest giving a speech talking about his old smuggling days and the crowd is with him. And he's a great speaker, you know, as a pitch man. 
And he told me I had this realization, like all these people already love weed. They don't need to hear from me. But now he's old now. He's a senior citizen by the time he gets out. Right. And he's like, I should be telling senior citizens that cannabis is great for a lot of the problems that you get as you get older and no one's talking to them. So he forms this organization called the Silver Tour and he starts like basically going from one retirement community to another as a speaker mm-hmm. and and he's like as soon as I start talking to them they're down. Yeah. Yeah, people who like their whole lives were against it. Dude, that's crazy. And I mean, I think that's you know that signals the sea change. Look, in the time the platform was in prison, a lot a lot changed. You know, and I think that, you know, when we look at the huge shift, uh, you know, the change in acceptance of cannabis, you know, you've seen the polls swing in essentially 20 years. Really, it's it's a demographic shift in that the all the a lot of the people who were subject to all the propaganda, very effective propaganda that ran for decades, right? Very concerted effort uh, in the United States and a lot of like, you know, European countries, et cetera. Um, those people are dying off. That's literally what's happening. So in, the, in that 30 years, right? Like, meaning those people died off and people who grew up uh, in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, times when the media was more accepting, wink, wink, nudge, nudge about cannabis. Uh, Bill Clinton, oh, I did not inhale. You know, the president is saying that he like puffed a joint at some point. Uh, you know, like, a lot changed and a lot changed because uh, a lot of people with really screwed up views on cannabis died. It continues to happen. Like literally like 10 years from now, one year from now, that percentage of people who are for the liberalization of cannabis on a fe- at a federal level in the United States is going to take up just a little bit more uh, because some of your grandmas and grandpas died. <laughs> but that's just the fact of the matter. You know what I mean? So Platchorn gets out of prison. When he goes into prison, it's like fucking... Drugs are bad. You know it, what well, I mean? Drugs the, are real, real bad. He goes in at this at this hard turn from sort of the Carter administration in the 70s and thinking it was going to be legalized. Mm-hmm. By the time he's prosecuted, it's the Reagan administration, and it's very clearly going the other way. Yeah, seriously. Suddenly, like, you know, the war on drugs is, is stepped up, uh, continues to be stepped up, uh, you know, with Bush 1. Uh, no hope for change kind of continues to be stepped up through Clinton, too. You know what I mean? Like, Clinton Absolutely. did not exactly curb the war on drugs. In fact, the prison population ballooned under uh, the Clinton administration. So, I mean, whatever. Not to get too in the weeds with, like, American politics. But look, the times change, you know? Well, we'll have that discussion on In the Weeds, our our new political podcast, <laughs> yeah. uh, where we talk about Everything politics while stoned. Yeah, starting with four, a four-part, two-hour-each-episode special on the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> and the rise of yeah. the uh, prison industrial complex. Yeah. Um, so, but, I so, would actually listen to that. <laughs> yeah, actually, you want to <laughs> yeah. do that? Yeah, maybe we should do this? that. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. That's a really interesting premise for a podcast. It'd be like, literally, it starts the, like as soon as Clinton's elected. I mean, that, mm-hmm. like, yeah, we should talk about that. That'd be cool. <laughs> um so this is this is how he gets uh and 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 this is something that everybody should be for for the most 
humanitarian reasons in the world, the older people in your life, whether you're yourself in that age bracket if or your parents or your grandparents, cannabis is a great medicine and they're getting so much pharmaceuticals thrown at them mm. um, that to make them at least aware of this other option is, I think, really important. Yeah, it's it really, I mean, it's essential, you know? But yeah, so oh, so where are we at with Platform? So this is what he does. He goes into these retirement homes. He goes into pitch man mode. Um, he starts by telling his own story, which just like grips them right off the bat. Um, then he tells them all about the racist underpinnings of prohibition, which, as he says, just they don't know. They were the original people subjected to this propaganda. Right. Um, and they uh, assumed it was truth. They believed what they read in the papers, in the Hearst papers, you know? And yeah. who can blame them? I mean, people believe everything they read in the news now. And most of the news is that other news is fake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody's news is real, and everybody else's news yeah. is fake to somebody. It's but, very yeah. confusing time. Everything you hear here is real news. You should know. Um, absolutely. And so he tells them all about the government lies. He brings in a doctor to talk about it as a medicine. He brings in a patient, somebody who has successfully an older person who has successfully used cannabis as a medicine. He talks about how the different prescription drugs that can be replaced or reduced with cannabis. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, and by the end, he's got them ready to try it. He's got them ready to write to their... It ends with them all writing letters to their representatives. Um, and he's just, uh, you know... He was a big part of getting medical cannabis passed in Florida. No kidding. Like, so that was pretty recently. I mean, this is like, that's his post-prison work there. So he's while he's a, a pitch man and stuff, he's also working on this shit. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's got his book sales and he does some writing and he does uh, these events. And, you know, he cobbles together. Uh, you know, he's on Social Security, obviously. You know, he's over 65. And, right. Um, and he's just tireless as an activist. He's and still hustling. What's so amazing to me is like he's still got a sense of humor. He's still like optimistic. He still believes in the humanity of people. You know, he he's it's, it's somebody of all the people that I've ever reported on that really inspires me. Uh, that like we said, I said at the beginning, that resiliency. I think. Yeah. Seriously. Um, and he has been, uh, he took this on the road. He's, he's brought groups of seniors to Washington, D.C. to lobby the government, uh, to lobby the state house in Florida. He's been covered in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times um, on CNN. And I don't know if you ever saw it, but there was a Daily Show segment called Old Tokes Home. No, I never saw that. But. All right, so uh, so what happened with him? Well, you know, that's he's he's living in Florida now, where there is medical cannabis, which is wonderful. He's you know obviously free to do as he wants. He has his organization going, and I think kind of the really beautiful part of this is um, he is reunited with his high school sweetheart and wife from all the way back before he went in, uh, went into prison. Wow, get out of town. So they did they stay together for that 30 years or they, they broke up and 
and then ended up getting back together. They, yeah, they they you know he said to her, "I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be gone too long. You right, know, live your life." Ah, oh, man, that's rough. Yeah, but that's uh, you know that's a noble thing to do. Shit, to be like, "Don't wait for me. I'm locked up on some bullshit for a chunk of my life." Yeah, and then when he got Very out, sad. she really just kind of said, "Well, you can, you know, you can stay with me. You don't have anywhere to stay." And, right. And love bloomed, and oh, that's fucking great, man. Well, good for Platorn. Holy shit, is that the end of his story? Ah, uh, yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, and he's still chilling. He's still out there in Florida, hanging out, smoking weed medically. He is uh, one of the more tireless freedom fighters for cannabis that I know to this day. Amazing, man. Well, that's incredible. You know, Platorn's story makes me remember that there are so many unsung heroes of cannabis. You know, people who have fought for the liberalization of cannabis and have lost so much themselves, you know, as a result. Look, we're talking about a guy who gave up half his life, uh, you know. And look, when he entered prison, you know, maybe he was just getting busted for something that, you know, excited him or something he was into, uh, but his incarceration really, uh, you know, turned him into an activist. Look, now he's out there bringing medical cannabis to a place that, I mean, by any estimation, would have taken a really long time to adopt medical cannabis in Florida. It's a pretty conservative place. You know what I mean? Um, So that's quite an accomplishment. So shout out to you, Platchorn. Uh, Glad to hear you're still chilling out there. Hope you're listening to this and smoking a fat one. And thanks uh, on behalf of great moments in weed history. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at Podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.